Chet, I really hate introductions. It's like it, n- it never feels natural. Uh, but but I, I guess I have to do it, and I need to just like man up and do it. Presumably, that you're listening to Uncertain the podcast. It may or may not be actually called that, and <laughs> that's very on brand. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, totally intentional. Uh, <laughs> I'm Adam. I'm Vanessa, and my name is Misha. And what we're trying to do now is see if we can pull off a postmortem to the to the conversation that Vanessa and I had with Tomer Persico uh, last week, I believe, um, which may or may not be released in in the proper order. Uh, we decided to bring in our our uh, expert on on all matters evangelical, which <laughs> um, Misha, uh, Kit, Kit, just for the sake of the the one person who listens to us who doesn't know who who <laughs> we and you are can you, can you just why 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 are you our expert for matters evangelical well oh my goodness well i guess i'm the token christian of the group <laughs> so yeah i mean i'm i grew up a preacher's kid my father is a black baptist pastor and so you know i grew up a christian and my degrees i studied theology and philosophy both in undergrad and uh, graduate school. I have a master's of divinity degree. And, so, and, yeah, and it's one of my favorite topics. You know, anytime there's a discussion about religion or philosophy, I'm always, I'm always game. You're the person to argue with about it. Yes. And you also have an, a fascinating um, Judeo fetish. Yes, I think this is true. <laughs> I do. I mean... Why do you say that? I should ask you. What, you know, what do you mean by saying I'm a Jew? You have much more emotional kinship with Judaism than most of my Jewish friends, I think. I think the reason, I think the reason why I felt stuck and I was pausing is because like, I was doing this quick sort of retrace of my history. And I remember discovering that I was drawn to Jewish things. It was like an accident. It was like, I thought, oh, that's, I guess that's why. And, you know, looking back, I think part of it was there, and I'm sorry if any of this is like unfair stereotype, but it became clear to me that the kinds of debates that I like to have about the Bible, um, though it seemed a little too extreme in a lot of my Christian circles or like, you know, my just the kids that grew up in my neighborhood, Somehow, when I was around Jewish people, it seemed normal. You know, they loved having the debates, like hmm. debates and disagreement and sort of tearing things apart and going up one side and down the other. You know, I later found out, oh, yeah, that's kind of our tradition. I thought, oh, wow, that's interesting. It was just a, a, an oddity in my experience. So, it, so that made me, I think, more drawn to Jewish You came for the arguments, stayed for the, for the Simchat Torah celebrations. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But then also, the truth is, you know, in my, you know, in the Baptist evangelical tradition, um, our Sunday school was more than just the New Testament. It wasn't like, you know, oh, we're Christians, we just read the New Testament. We had Sunday school lessons in the Old Testament, which of course is the Hebrew Bible. And so the things that you would be studying as a Jew was what we were studying as Christians. And so, um, there was always this kind of mystical fascination with, um, with Jewishness and Israel, Jerusalem, these kinds of things. So because of my Christian background, I was drawn to uh, Jewish things. 
the you um like it it's obvious to me but it's i i do want to stretch out the point of the arguments a little more like what 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 was the type of arguments on on scripture that you that you found that that you missed the ability to question anything and everything about the scripture you know even mm. you know, it was it was what we i think later in school it was termed a uh, a higher critical perspective So you can you can do higher criticism. It wasn't just like, oh, the Bible was something, you know, in my tradition, the Bible was the authority. You learned it, you studied it, you obeyed it. <laughs> you know, to question it was problematic. And you know, unless you were questioning to get clarification for obedience, it was a little problematic. Whereas I found all these Jewish friends who was like, "Hey, they were questioning scripture as part of their bar mitzvah." sermon you know and i thought oh this is really really cool it's fair game to question god question the scripture question the authorship and um yeah i think that's uh, it's a good question i never thought of it like that but i think that's it but you are now an atheist that's how you describe yourself now right yes i am although you know i've kind of updated the term i oh. i like i am an atheist yes but i i like playing around with this new term where i think of myself as a theistic atheist by which all i mean is you know literally speaking i am an atheist and all of what that means but i'm a theist in the sense that i love religion and i love scripture and i love this idea of god as this you know representational form so the same way that i might get excited over mythology and say hell oh, okay i can talk about mythological characters that are fictional but mm-hmm. uh, fiction can be just as real as non-fiction but it's still fiction So in that sense I like to call myself a theistic atheist so that the often misunderstanding of atheism doesn't keep me from having the fun that we would otherwise have. <laughs> I think it's more fun to think of it as being like bilingual. Like I'm thinking, "Hey, I grew up with this religious language. I know it so well. Why cut myself off from that by saying atheism in a way that just says, "Oh, I'm no longer part of that." Whereas I'm like, "Hey, I get actually like talk this one language and move away from it and sort of like translate between the two and that's kind of that's what I'm playing around with with the term but it's a yeah i think that's a nice way of putting it misha because i do feel sometimes when uh we have these conversations that tend to, like our interview with tomar prisco i feel very much out of my depth because i was so like tomar i guess i was raised in an atheist family but rather than going to india and finding god i just you know <laughs> went on my merry godless way um and there was like no emphasis in my in my household around understanding scripture or delving into ancient texts and i i do feel like it's another language that i was never really exposed to and so when i enter into these conversations i have i do feel like i'm i need things to be translated to me basically into you know my my godless 21st century uh, vernacular here <laughs> yeah you know i so appreciate hearing that because i think oh my goodness that's i mean i don't want to get too like mission oriented or anything but it's like yeah that's kind of what i'm up to like i think that's a shame because i would immediately i mean and i know you i know your love of literature and poetry and i know how you come alive connecting ideas and what i would say is i would say yes i would point my finger and say Yes, that's what religious experience was in my experience. Like my upbringing, you know, what you're finding in literature for example, and the excitement and the way that you relate it to life and your human struggle, there's a way in which religion is another literary expression. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, I mean, you know, 
that would be a different way for you to hear that than some proselytizing for you to join a club so mm-hmm. you don't go to hell. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the question that always comes to me when we, we do these comparisons, and every so often we do them in all our um, drunken nights, we religion as a form of literature or literature as a form of faith what why do we why do we need the metaphor of religion i think i i i'm kind of kicking myself for not bringing this up to tomer um but but i feel like there is a isn't there a part of the way that we're constantly locking the conversations about faith and and all the secular pleasures of the intellect, like literature, poetry, those things that, that, that do penetrate the souls in, in what normally would be considered non-religious yeah. means. Why, why do we still need to cling on to the, to the godly aspect of it or to the spiritual aspect of it if, if we recognize that the pleasure exists without it? Why do we need to still view it as religion why can't we just yeah. look at it as matters of the human intellect matters of the human I think spirit. it's a good question I think it's a good question and I, you know I would suspect that that is what Tomer is doing <clears throat> and I agree with it and it's so funny even as an atheist I agree with it you know I agree that we should look to religion to extract some of its values translated into a modern humanistic or religious application now to answer your question why I think it's historically and culturally significant. You know, like I think what religion represents is this continuity of ancient principles and ancient anthropology. I mean, I don't know, however you want to explain it or understand it. And it gives us a chance to see how, you know, what happens in the development of history when, because of what we think of as progress, we lose something that we associate with kind of like the primitive or ancient world. And I think that there are some really good aspects of religion that are somehow lost in our thinking that we're progressing away from it. You know, we're becoming, we're becoming civilized away from what we think religion was doing. And in doing that, we lose a little bit of wisdom, if you will. And so like, if you can look at religion as historically significant, then we ask, we say, Hey, Maybe there is some wisdom that the ancients had, and though it was organized and packaged around what we think of as religion, maybe there is some real wisdom that we can um, we could use in our current times. So for you, it's denuding religion of the religious aspect and just seeing what it was as a social system or as a moral system. Yes, yeah. Or just, you know, I mean, you know, what we're calling religion, it's still an expression of all the things that we've somehow formalized into academic disciplines now. You have sociology going on. You know, you have psychology happening way before it was an actual discipline. You have, uh, you know, belief systems and rituals at play and politics. You know, so we can think of it as religion because, yeah, it's organized that way. But, you know, what was going on in the human experience that um, offers something to us? I mean, I think, I mean, in our, in our conversation with Tomer, he kind of brings up 
two two different things that um, I mean that kind of relate to what you're saying here, Misha. Like he he mentions how there is this kind of like new age spirituality that has taken root in our culture today as kind of a replacement for religion. But I got the sense from our conversation that he didn't didn't find that that would be particularly. I don't know what the right word is, productive, I guess, in terms of scratching that religious itch. Um, I kind of got that. I'll curious to see what you guys thought about that, but I felt like he felt like that was inadequate, a replacement. The other thing he brought up that um, has not translated into current times is this idea of of ritual and routine. And I remember him saying, uh, you know, sometimes my fellow religious um, kind of believers will say, if we could just get them to do X prayer, X routine, X ritual, then they'd understand. And then they would, then they would like come to realize how important this is. And I remember Tomer saying like, no, I don't think that's going to work either, frankly. Like it's not, it's not, you can't just, just put a a ritual onto a contemporary, uh, into a contemporary setting and, and think that it's going to magically make the switch into, into some sort of religious experience. So I, I don't know. I'm curious how, in what way then are we supposed to meaningfully incorporate kind of religiosity into a an, a non-religious life yeah this is great by the way i perked up on that part of the conversation it was so great so i you know my reaction to it is yeah i agree that the religionists let's call them you know their hope that by getting these other people to adopt our rituals they'll be fine they miss the point of ritual is my reaction the point of ritual isn't the particular rituals per se. It's the fact of rituals as a necessary part of human mastery. We are creatures of habit, and therefore, we have to just repeat things over and over enough until it starts to become automatic. That's the genius and magic of what's happening in religion. And religion does it so well that we, in a secular context, would be wise to imitate it. But what's lacking in my argument, you know, my reaction to that is what's lacking in modern times isn't that we're suddenly not ritualistic. It's that we're ritualistic in a haphazard kind of way. Like we're not, we haven't organized our rituals around an ideal that seems meaningful in like a more collective, culturally significant way. You know, and this reminds me of the conversation you were having with him about individualism and the idea that it's almost as if we're confused and overwhelmed with oh, everybody does his own thing. It's your own truth and your own feelings. But I think this has become very, very confusing for the modern experience. And it's kind of like, you know, how do we get some stability here? And so from from religion, we can borrow the idea that, hey, it's up to us. I mean, if we play around with coming up with some ideals that we actually really believe in, we find meaningful, purposeful, wholesome, helpful, then we come up with the rituals. You know, what is it that we can do that will make our mastery of that ideal um, significant? I'm trying to come up with an example. Um, well, I, well, one example that comes to mind is going to university. That is a ritual, and that is to some degree woven around um, an ideal, the ideal of either education on one hand or the the rites of passage towards being a productive member of a capitalist society absolutely but both of them fit within the the current 
democratic liberal ideal, at least as it is in, in the United States. But I think it's, it's to, even to a more idealized way exists in Europe and in Israel as well, because you almost take out the being a productive member of society, um, take it out of the equation, and you are just left with university as this, this font of virtue and... Mm-hmm. Um, you say this as a non-American though, Adam. I mean, I went into university as an English major and I can't tell you how many times I got asked, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Oh, no, no. That's why, that's why I tried to separate. You got that asked while you were going to an American university. Yes. 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 No, that's what I'm, I'm separating that. The, the line for me is between the, the continental version uh. of education and obviously the american one which again makes sense even with the the cost of university being so high in the u.s it makes sense when you think that the the whole point is to make to 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 prepare you to make money and then you'll be able to pay back the dissonance (laughs) is when people in the u.s follows the european model and then go to study um like yeah an english major or or (laughs) history in my case uh that that is where where you have kind of a the derangement of two contradictory ideals in society and then you end up being like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt but If, if we picked a religion, then it would make sense. If, if everybody were going to study, uh, A, the market would probably have uh, fixed itself at least a little bit because people like, part of it is obviously the student loans and blah, blah, blah. But the, but the market would have at least somewhat been more re- responsive if, if people were just a kind of Chicago school, rational uh, decision makers who go to study the, the subject that will probably give them the, most, the, the highest chance of, uh, of, of financial security. And then, and then the cost of college would somehow be aligned with, um, with the salaries. As it is now, only a certain percentage of students go to study the, 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 only, the only worthwhile subject, which is obviously coding and computer science, and, um, and then make disproportionate uh, wealth to, to the rest of us idiots who, who studied the, uh, the humanities. But, but the problem... But part of the problem, definitely not all of it, but part of the problem is that kind of conflict of ideals because there's so much idealism in university. Vanessa and I, and to some extent you, Misha, Misha you, we went, we pursued education based on this version of education is beautiful, education is important, it completes you as, yes. as, as a person. That, and that is part, that's a myth. That's a religious myth is. that we followed. It certainly is. And I mean, that we followed it. Um, I mean, I'm perking up because I was thinking, oh, good. I thought Generation X, we were the last generation to buy into that. If you bought into mm-hmm. it, I'm relieved. Like, we thought, hey, the liberal arts education is going to make us more well-rounded for your life. But yeah, but, but, then, but then it clearly does. I think that it bit us in the ass. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, there was a lot of, when we, the, people talk about the generational differences and Misha, you just read the um, seminal piece about the, the millennial and, and iGen, the, the common American minds. Yep. Um, and, and I think uh, there's a lot in those discussions, there was always the cutoff between the old millennials like Vanessa and myself and the young millennials who, who go more into the, uh, the iGen type. And I think part of the cutoff was recession, the 2008 recession and the financial crisis and, and kind of reality like like splashing into our faces and set, and the kind of people who are slightly younger than Vanessa and I and were born into the realization oh not born sorry but came 
came of age into the realization that you know the the fantasy of you being able to pursue the the, the vision of the world where education means something qua education that just being a, a well-rounded educated student also will usually mean that you'll be able to find your place in society that that myth has been shattered yeah but traces of it still obviously still make people go like keep people going into those fields but in the back of their minds they know that they're in a trap and they know that this myth was a lie and now and at least in the United States the only useful myth is that myth of you know choose education is important so long as you choose the right vocation and 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 your goal is not to be a wholesome human being but yeah i mean productive Wow. And then for the people who are smart enough to go and st- go uh, do coding, then good. They have they have a decent life for the most part. I think they they, they can take care of themselves. Debt is taken care of um, at an early stage, and and they have their joyous life of solving computer problems. But but the, but the people who still follow the traces of humanism, like Vanessa and I, but are slightly younger, I feel have done so with the sort of resentment or the resentment as the, the, as Nietzsche would put it that led him to to kind of the part of the hostility that we're seeing today in 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 a lot of people and especially people in the media who are exactly the people who went for this this myth like young people in media are really really angry and they and they feel that how like the the the, the story of society has failed them and they are they're taking it out like they're they're starting to pull out their knives in in yeah in, it really it's it's really so powerful to hear you say that and you know it's funny i wasn't expecting to say this but Bear with me. I think it is related to the Tomer conversation, which I think is so rich. I think there are two other like myths that really fuel that and it makes it tragic. And that is like, it's the way, like the American way of relating to capitalism and our way of thinking about individualism. Mm-hmm. Like both of those things. And I say that carefully because, you know, in the end, I just want to show my cards. In the end, I'm wanting to defend a kind of ideal around both capitalism and individualism. But here's the problem. In America, in both of those, we exaggerated this myth of the evil of the collective. You know, mm-hmm. like, so in other words, if it's not capitalism, we're going to slip into the evil of communism. And that's yeah. evil. And communists are collectivistic. We're not. We're capitalists and we're individualistic. So what happens is our individualism is one that actually isolates us. And I don't think there's anything about individualism as an ideal that presumes that I'm not connected to a collective. I'm not connected to a wider society or community for which I thrive and work and I'm interested, you see? And so I think like all of this goes together because where's the ideal that our education, for example, going back to that, has any other importance than for me? (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so this is where I think you know, going back to religion, we need to recover some secular uh, civil ideals. You know what I mean? This is what I mean. We're just using religion as an as a inspiration. You know, religion will have an ideal and then they create, create rituals to manifest the ideal. I'm suggesting like we need to, we need to create an ideal that belonging to community, being socially minded isn't an enemy to individualism. It, again, this is just a problem of 
So I 100% agree with what you just said. I, I think that this is also the problem of using the word religion to describe those things, because Tomer's book does a really great job. And, and to our one listener, I really recommend that you get the book when it comes out. <laughs> I will. But, but you should. <laughs> <laughs> but also you should get the, um, the book of, of the person who may or may not be our next interviewee. Um, which you'll have to wait and listen yeah. to see who it is. Uh, but because it also touches uh, some of the similar, some similar themes. It really, those two books clarify how the concept of religion, as we understand it today, as something that we, we discover ourselves as, as a product of revelation, as a product of individual journey, as um, a matter of conscience. That is already that is the Polian version of of religion, and that is a inherently Christian concept. Which aspect is which aspect are you calling Christian? The the, con, the conscience focused yeah. uh, interpretation of religion is something that is a matter of choice, a matter of individual uh, force of will, a matter of personal revelation and and personal decision personal determination to pursue that faith as opposed to simply a social construct mm-hmm. that kind that type of of faith of m- means of worship is christian and both tomer and our next guest um is fair uh, put an emphasis on religion the word itself being directly tied to this understanding of which makes sense because the word religion developed in the roman catholic and later uh protestant uh world of europe where where it was it was tied to what they understood religion to be for judaism it was a journey to become quote unquote a religion because mm-hmm. judaism was just a social construct judaism yeah, judaism was just um, um was you couldn't even you wouldn't have called it judaism Calling yep. it the ism is already called the Christianizing Judaism or Christia- Christianizing the the Jewish people. To be honest, this was you know this was one point of um, of contention that I had in that part of the discussion, and it's I mean it's 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 significant, but it's not you know it's it doesn't it doesn't change it doesn't change my excitement about what I think Tumor is doing, and like I'm all on board. I'm like oh my goodness, yes, I'm part of this idea of you know, finding inspiration in the history of ideas. Cause that's what he was saying. He was like, Oh, my book isn't really about religion. It's about the history of ideas. And I was like, right. yes. And the history of ideas that are contained in this examination of religion, I'm all for applying it to now, even politically. But here's where my argument is with what you just said. It's not really fair to say that this idea of sort of individual choice and consciousness is Christian. Because one, Christian history is much more complex than that. And it wasn't really Paul's invention. I mean, Paul's influence was actually much more political than the religious history likes to recall. And secondly, he was actually really implementing the Greek influence. So it's like Hellenism written all over Paul. So Paul really shouldn't get the credit as if like he invented <laughs> this idea. I, mean, I don't want. I don't want to sound as if that's what uh, I'm saying. But for, yeah. I, a, I think your your point is wonderful, and I uh, I 
this is another point that I'm kicking myself for not bringing up. I actually had this question written down um, and I just, I'm just being a failure. I, I forgot to bring it up. Mm-hmm. The bigger point I think is that Tomer wouldn't deny. Um, and I think he even brings it up in the book, the, the Hellenistic and, and even Roman to some extent um, elements yeah, of, of, of conscience. Um, it's the, the reason Paul gets credit is not for inventing. And I don't think, either Tomer or, or, or no, our next guy. I don't think they would say that ideas are something that, that just comes into being in, in any society. But the question is, who, who, what name you associate with making those ideas? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it, Paul. But, but that's just it. That's why Paul is the real, the true first Christian, because yes. it's his Christianity. It's his, his version of Christianity that... Um, we understand today. It's not, you know, it's, it's, not actually, it's not James. It's not James's no, it's Christianity that we it's but there's an interesting there's an interesting paradox here because like you're absolutely right. It's true that there's a revelation, there's a whole emphasis of revelation in this Pauline Christianity, but also there's this Greek influence of sort of natural theology. And that is this diversion from the Jewish tradition. You know, the ancient Hebrew tradition was, no, there's no logic. It's not us. We didn't discover God. God came to us. You know what I mean? So the basis of Judaism is that God came to us, revealed himself to us. There's nothing about logic that's going to bring us to God. Whereas Paul is having it kind of both ways. He's borrowing from the Greeks and saying, ah, look, I can just reason with you and through the reason, you're going to see that this is right. And he's extrapolating all of these sort of, you know, platonic forms. But guess what? Here's the irony. How did he come to it? Revelation. <laughs> you know, on his walk to Damascus, Jesus reveals himself to him, but everyone else should just listen to him reasoning his way through. He's trying to have it both ways. I mean, and that's, that's, the, that's the magic that was so powerful that it's just caught like wildfire, right? He, he managed to do this. He managed to bridge that that element of judaism and tomer would also um re- emphasize that the other piece that he brought in from judaism is the the um the image of god oh, uh, which is almost anathema to um to hellenistic and roman uh concept of humanity because humanity is just dust for for the greek and roman gods it's it's nothing they're they're bugs fortune or luck, or or chance—that's the the real operating power in the universe. It is it is what it is. To quote our president, and below <laughs> it there are the gods who are the natural forces, and below the gods are the cockroaches that that <laughs> are humanity. Paul brings in the the image of God that like humanity has worth, and then he com- and then he does this beautiful syncretism with the Hellenistic tradition and says, yeah, it has worth, but that worth comes to us through revelation and we find it in ourselves individually and not as part of the collective. Yeah. You know, he is, he is having it both ways there too, because um, first of all, like the Greek philosophies were much more like, there was a lot more tension than just saying, you know, there was one thought, but Plato was actually, he was already describing this in his forms. Like the platonic forms were arguing that, you know, the individual, I mean, there was individualism even in Plato because he was saying, look, individual character and virtue is actually important because individual virtue actually parallels the virtue and the order of the state. And the order of the city state is actually replicated out, 
out there, like in the heavens, you know, out there in the universe is the real sort of truth to it. So you think, wow, this is part of what I think Paul was borrowing from. He was taking like the earthly and saying, hmm, the earthly really isn't about this. It's actually about something that's out there. Like there's this sort of perfect form of it that it's really about. And that's what he was doing when he was like, uh, you know, dissolving identity. There's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither male nor female in Christ. You know, it's as if Christ is now facilitating this platonic ideal that the physical body and the physical earth is actually just borrowing from this ideal out there. And so, well, it was interesting because the Christian, the early Christian fathers and theologians, they loved Plato because they were like, oh my goodness, look at this. We have this, you know, Greek philosopher that must be proving, you know, he, like the fact, like did did Plato know Moses' writings? Like, like this, this was giving them the rational, logical way to make sense of this religion, you know, this religion that's about revelation, but Plato helps us to say, hey, it's not just revelation. We can actually sort of argue our way through it. And that's where Christian theology was born. It was like this hybrid of, you know, ancient Jewish mysticism meets you know, the hyper-rationalism of Greek philosophy. Boom! And that's the real way to see what was going on. And by the time you look at 16th century reformers like Calvin and Luther, their belief was that it wasn't by choice. I mean, they're sort of choice. Like, yeah, you have to choose to believe in God, but guess what? You only believe if you're chosen by God. You know what I mean? Like, if the spirit... You, you, don't, choose, you don't choose to choose. Yeah, exactly. You don't choose to choose. And, and, you know, when you read this dense and fascinating theology of, you know, 16th century John Calvin and Luther, you know, it's their primary beliefs are, yeah, it is solo fides by faith alone, but this faith is only coming from the grace that God gives to you. God is still choosing you. And once he chooses you, you can be so lucky to say, yes, I believe. <laughs> But the point, but the point that I was trying to make, like, like, who knows how long ago, and and I got sidetracked in this wonderful, um, what, what do you, what do you call detour? Detour. That's the English word. Everything that we are saying now is is exactly why the concept of religion as a religion is limited because this yeah. credit uh, Paul or credit uh, uh, Plato. We're what we have here is a Western version of of, of a Western syncretized version. This is, this is pure syncretism that Paul has created and popularized of uh, individual based system of worship, and that is that is very different from the Talmudic version of Judaism, and that is, which is also very different from from say um, Hinduism. I think this is what makes it so challenging because when we're thinking of it, religion as this type of process that you can think through, that you can argue through, but ultimately it's something that happens to the individual. There is this tension between whether it comes to them through um, revelation or through a process of reasoning and, and hyper-rationality, but ultimately it happens to the individual. So yeah. that issue of hyper-individualism exists in this category of religion, which again, it was very different from, Jew, from the Jewish faith of, that preceded it, or at least from the, the, what, what is considered now as Jewish orthodoxy. The, 
the individualization of it, the fact that the Jewish faith became a religion is the victory of Christianity. And the fact that Hinduism got this ism in the end is, again, a form of Christian imperialism. The, it's superimposing the Christian uh, metaphysics of where faith occurs as something that is individual on other, other, other systems of faith, other systems of belief. I love what Tomer said like early on. And then, I mean, he was great. He consistently, you know, demonstrated this. He was very clear to say, well, ultimately the book isn't really about religion. It's about the history of ideas. And so sticking with that, I think that really sort of cleans up the concern that you have. So, so long as we stick with this idea that what we're looking for in his book is the history of ideas and how there's something about the history of ideas that is contained or transmitted through religious history, let's call it, that's what he's wanting to highlight or borrow, namely the image of God. And I'm like, yes, because he effectively, I think, he very effectively uh, translates the image of God as a religious motif, which is part of the history of ideas. He captures that as a really good idea that correlates around liberalism, individualism, and you know, all the stuff that we would want to really, you know, covet today. And so I think remembering that it's the history of ideas that we're looking for is the way to not get so hung up on those parts of our history that, that I mean, it's all developmental. Like if there were parts of history that we've advanced from, whatever, you know, whatever we mean by advance, then why can't what we call religion be part of those earlier developmental stages? Well, I think if you're looking at it this way, I think you'll get you'll get even the 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 most militant atheist. You'll get you'll get Dawkins behind you if if this is if this wow. is how you describe it. I'm, I, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't ask him um, <laughs> when we were having tea yesterday, but I'm pretty sure that this is the this is the something that most, if not all, militant atheists will get behind. If you look at it as a developmental stage, and uh, if you look at it strictly as a structure for understanding the world that we now take as uh, just metaphorically or pragmatically, oh, yes. then, then that's, uh, that's wonderful. And, he, I think, and he, he explains it too. Like it, was, it was exquisite when he said, look how it happened. He said, wait a minute. If Paul is saying... There's no difference between Jew and Gentile or male or female. And actually, like God lives within you, then you know, you know what's gonna happen next. Eventually, people are gonna say, well, wait a minute, maybe we don't have a need even for Jesus at all. Or wait a minute, maybe we don't have a need for God. So when you, when he said that, I thought, bingo, that's the value of what he's saying. He's saying if we look at these things honestly, courageously, we see that what's happening, I mean, it's almost like a it's almost like we're advocating for Hegel's view of history. It's as if history is moving through developmental stages. It's like Jesus and Paul's ideas necessarily, it, it weakens tyranny. It yes. weakens our dependence on authority. And what do we do with the next iterations of it? That's what yes. I think of the real struggle for. Yes, but now we're stuck with the, the, the crisis of meaning that I think Tomer is responding to, and yes. it, you definitely respond to it in Venice, and I respond to partly. That's why we started uncertain. That's part of the that feeling of of being adrift, of being uh, unmoored. 
that is also the result of this uh, process of ideas. True, but the answer is within, the answer is in the very sort of main theme, which is if it's the image of God that we're borrowing, then guess what that means? It means we're all God. And if God is the source of meaning, we must collectively collaborate in such a way where we co-create the meaning together. Now, I think that's a fabulous ideal, but what it means is that has to replace the kind of enmity and the division and tribalism that we're still operating from. So ironically, this archaic idea of image of God could be the principle to evolve us away from primitive tribalism. You know, it's like, hey, if we're all God in this metaphoric way, we have to collaborate. And by the I, way, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's a little too late for that. I mean, he, I mean, Tomer says that, you know, the image of God has been flipped on its head. It's now the image of human. man. You know, yeah. I, I don't know if, if it's a still potent framework, really. I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you, you guys is I, I think that there, when you guys were talking about revelation versus reasoning and how the, you know, the Christianity post-Paul was kind of some sort of mixture of both. I feel like what we have today is no reasoning, but yes, revelation, but not a revelation that comes from God. It's like yeah. it's like there's a deep respect for revelation that comes from <laughs> experience or suffering or overcoming and like and story maybe. Yeah, even. That's so great. Um, so I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to think about that for whatever reason in this history of ideas, the, the one that won out was this revelation idea much more so than image of god or or the need for reasoning at the moment at the, at moment. the moment at the moment yeah well, i mean even if you look at the 19th century the the different ideals that one constantly flipped there was a moment in the 19th century where it was the revelation idea that that was winning as well that's kind of like the rom romantic moment of the 19th mm -hmm. century and mm -hmm. you also have the hyper rationalist moment of the that's right, right. so at the at 20, in 2020, in 2020, yeah. United States, or in especially even more so, 2020 New York City, 100. It's the it's the revelation of, as you perfectly put it, the revelation of suffering above everything else. This is the if you want to be a Paul, a Saint Paul today, you need to be able to describe how we the experience of pain was revealed to you. And mm, yeah. But it's not just suffering, because I mean, one of the things that I thought was most interesting about our conversation was this the topic of authenticity that he yeah. brought up that I hadn't really thought about in this in this context before. But it, it's almost it's less important. I think your suffering is less important. It's more important about how authentic you're being perceived in your messaging, whether that's suffering or, or other or or on the other side of it, right? Being the the powerful one who has overcome. Um, I don't know. I feel like that authenticity piece was very interesting to me. It was. I, it was. I, would, I would love to like maybe dwell on that topic a little bit more, what you guys felt about that. I think, you know, I, I thought that that, I, first of all, I think the assessment is right. I think we're obsessed with authenticity, but I think it's a vestige of the old, I think it's the vestige of our primitive ancient religious nature without us even knowing about it. In other words, authenticity is just a fancy word for us still in this kind of panicked way, relying on truth. We think there is mm. a truth out there and we need it to save ourselves. Mm. And so, but now that we each represent, you know, we each sort of harbor the truth, it's my truth and your truth. 
So long as we're authentic, we'll be safe because authenticity equals truth. And I'm saying, no, like, can't you see we're still clinging to this old God truth, but now we're the God truth. I say it's actually harder than that. We don't get a freebie. We don't get a free revelation that the truth is out there somewhere and you just have to find it. We actually have to do the hard work of being gods, which means we have to create the truth through collaboration. Now, that's a really, that sounds really, really big and hard, but that, I think, is the only thing you're going to be left with if, as Nietzsche says, if God is actually really dead, which he's pretty much dead post-Enlightenment scientific revolution, you know, in, in a certain kind of way, then we have to be it, and that's scary. And I just think that, you know, the reason why it seems so impossible, because we have to take care of two different needs, which I don't think we're doing as a society. We have to meet the basic primitive needs of society, meaning people have to eat and have basic jobs and be able to survive. And then to really perform in this sort of higher civilized way where we're co-creating meaning without a dictator telling us, you have to have a certain amount of education and a certain amount of training and thinking and being and collaborating. And I think that there's so much meaninglessness because how do we do this? You know, how do you, how do you form a society where we're really looking after the basic needs of the people of the society, as well as trying to advance their capacity to actually take responsibility for meaning rather than depend on a guru or divine revelation for the meaning? Wow. Vanessa, were you sorry? Yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm just thinking, I guess I'm still, I'm still thinking about authenticity. It's like swirling around in my brain. And I, and, and I think part of the reason why it was so interesting to me when he brought it up was because as someone who does not have a, a an imposed moral framework from a religion or whatever, um, kind of cultural background, I, I, I realized in my conversation with Tomer, the way that I figure out whether I am living up to some sort of moral standard that I've set for myself is kind of a, a process of trial and error, essentially, where I, I act, I reflect, and I have some sort of sense of, let's say, inner compass. And I kind of reflect on to how, to, like, did I feel good when I did that? Did I feel bad about that? Am I meeting, matching up to what I felt was the right thing to do? That? So how far did I veer? And so there's this kind of calibration that I have to go through. And I assume that most people do who don't have a kind of clear set of what is right, what is wrong. Um, and in that way, when I think about it that way, it's like there is some sort of sense that authenticity is very powerful because when I feel authentic, when I feel true to myself, it means that I am acting in a way that I, I think holds up to what I imagined for myself. And that includes a moral component. I think, um, that, I think that bit of software is what Tomer and uh, M- Misha as um, his um, designated apostle for this conversation, I suppose, <laughs> uh, is are are saying, and I and I'm I'm slightly persuaded by it. Is the idea that 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 instinct to interpret your authentic comfort, your conscience uh, reaction to the to your action, and that inner judge of your action is is that image of God concept is, is that narrative because in you could have been brought up in uh, under a, a different narrative, a different myth that mm-hmm. would have told you that 
feeling that you get when when your your gut is telling you that you, this is what you should be doing that's wrong that is that yeah. is the, that is the devil speaking through you mm. it's really true but that I, emphasis on yeah. the ability to interpret things yourself and to the deep down deep down there is this voice that's telling you that this is right and this is wrong well, right but but i think what me is the image of god Mm, yeah, but I think what Misha, I, my understanding of what you were saying was that, that for you, the thing that could be most powerful if, is if there's an element of collaboration and community in in the creation of that kind of moral compass. Is, and, and, and Misha, I, w- I want you to, I want you to, I want you to expand on this. I just want to compliment you before you expand on it, before <laughs> before you ruin it, before you okay. ruin it with more. Um, I want to just say that listening to you, I was just re- seriously moved. I don't know if it's the. Um, if it's the argument itself, your or your deep baritone, or or is it drinking just the whiskey, Adam? drinking two shots of Lafroig. Um, <laughs> when you said that the image of God is not is not a privilege, it's a responsibility. That's right. Yeah, that's that, right. That that I think I thought was shattering. It's it's the it's kind of like the chosen people thing, where yes. the chosen people oh in God, the yes. Jewish tradition. It doesn't mean. Oh, you're elevated about the other people. It means you have more duties. You actually need to work harder. That idea of image of God, image of God doesn't mean you get a freebie. It it's just an ideal. I mean, it's an ideal to which you aspire. And by the way, this is, I get excited because it takes us back to Plato again. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there were really clues in the ancient world that God revisited in first century Roman Palestine through Jesus, through Paul. Like they were revisited. The reason why I'm, I keep going back to that is because in a way, that's what Tomer's saying. That's what we're all saying. We're saying, hey, if, if Paul and first century Palestine, you know, Roman Palestinian thinkers could sort of reinterpret and make their own, synthesize ideas that were in the ancient Greek world, why can't we do that now with our own reshaping of it? And so, like, you know, you have Plato and Socrates actually arguing against the sophists and they're like, yeah, the sophists don't care about meaning or character. So long as you can give a good speech and persuade and get what you want. Hey, that's the way it goes. Kind of reminds you of today. Right. And he said, but no individual character really means something. And this is based on some ideal that's out there. And so when I hear Vanessa speak, I'm like, Oh my goodness. Okay. This is actually my personal experience as well. You know, Vanessa speaking as someone who did not grow up Christian or religious, right? But look at her moral character. I'm like, okay, I know Vanessa. If there is a conflict between us or in a group, her character of being able to listen, to be honest, to think through it, there's a lot of maturity emotionally and psychologically that's required in order to do that. So what I'm saying is, to me, that's a symbol of what's happening in society. Well, either that or repression. It could be a part of repression too, fine. But my point is, in society, there are some people, and let's say people that are religious, if their religious experience is still primitive, and I don't mean that to put them down, I just mean literally it's primitive, like your dependence on God is in lieu of your dependence on yourself. You just don't have it yet. It's like, you know, little kids are more dependent on their parents when they're kids than when they're older. So let's say a real sort of primitive connection to religion means you're just looking to obey. They're not going to show up to that same conflict the way Vanessa will, you see? And so my point is this ideal of the image of God that Tomer is doing, I point to Vanessa in a way which she described. 
it's experiences like that that we're trying to cultivate. That's all I'm saying. Like we're using that as an ideal to cultivate human responsibility as a stand-in for what in the ancient world was obedience to an authoritarian God. But how do you take it into practice and how do you take it out of the the solipsistic version yeah. of it, the solipsistic, narcissistic, my experience is the only thing that counts. You know what? I hate, to, I hate to answer this with such a, I don't know, lowbrow philosophical reference, but to be honest, maybe it's just because I read it this summer, but I swear it's not even a philosopher. It's Neil Postman. You know, Neil Postman, the sociologist who wrote the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, you know, his whole warning was, the TV entertainment culture would be a disaster if um, public discourse starts to imitate TV entertainment and education. And I think his warning was right, but I think that's what happened. So now it's as if, you know, TV entertainment epistemology is what he called it. That's our way of orienting ourselves. And that's why there's this narcissism, as you're talking about. That's why there's this sort of fragmented, out of context, reductionist, is think reductionist thinking because public discourse is not like how we're talking right now. I mean, <laughs> you know, the TV version is not like this. It's short, it's fragmented. You can't really have long form thinking. And so I think we've had a few generations where public discourse is treated like TV entertainment, very reductionist. And we're just craving for meaning rather than being overwhelmed or oversaturated saturated with so many ideas, so many options that we really have a sense of meaninglessness. I feel, and I feel like we're not just craving meaning. I feel like we're craving purpose and craving some sort of sense that our actions matter for more than ourselves you know like i think i i don't know i, I guess i'm speaking personally on behalf of, of of a society here but i mean one thing that i feel like and to be fair the I will, royal me we. the royal me i mean and to be fair i mean like let's say like you know the, obviously these these are the kind like i mean maybe not obviously but for me these were the kinds of things i didn't think about when i was like scrimping and saving and had to get by right when i was scrimping and scraping and had saving and had to get by i was just thinking about like you know getting getting by myself and kind of doing what I could for yeah. myself as much as I could. And it's only now that I'm, I'm kind of a, a economically stable enough that I've been thinking more about what can I do to be a better per human? And for yeah. me, that means how do I help other people? Now, for some, some people Touch don't have wood. that. Touch on what and like and a lot of people like they can they could be scrimping and saving and and still helping people so I think there's like a, a, a lack of generosity of spirit there that I just I guess I did is one of a short a shortcoming of mine but this idea of and I think this goes back to what you're talking about Misha with connecting with a larger community and a sense of kind of fellow man I feel like that's the element that's missing that would allow someone who's trying to be a moral good person to kind of make the switch towards actual action that could be meaningful and have implication on that's a broad and one on on some something outside of yourself. Yeah, that's beautiful. But I still want you to go into that. that yeah, idea. give us give us the solution, Misha. <laughs> I mean, okay, so let's let's borrow from let's. This is what I love. This is why I love talking about religion in a historical context because it's like reading a story. You're like, oh, 
So these were the conditions that led through the new breakthrough idea. And the new breakthrough idea wasn't just because it was fabulous. It actually had like a function. So check this out. If you're in first century Roman occupied Palestine, and if you were Jewish, your religious way to survive like a chaotic universe. And believe me, it was chaotic and it was also like tyranny under Roman. You know, it was like, it wasn't all <laughs> great. <laughs> so your religious, <laughs> your religious identification was a way of surviving this. Your identity was you, you are the chosen. You are the people of God. And your religious traditions and rituals, that's the ark that carries you through the sea of this chaos. Now, if you're a Gentile <laughs> and you're poor and you're a woman and you're discriminated against it, like all of the, the horrible conditions of life, when Jesus is walking around basically saying, hey, you know, believe in me and you're going to have God looking after you. And you know, you, so he's preaching peace and political transformation. And like, he's the hope and change candidate, right? <laughs> and so Paul, so he gives hope to all these people that don't have the hope that you have from, from the privilege that you're talking about. So what Paul does, he's taking it to the next level, but he was actually losing the debate because he was like, like who, the, who the heck is Paul? Like, he's a Jew who was actually persecuting the Christians, and now suddenly he's going to be the leader of this? No way. So Paul was not very successful in Jerusalem. He was rejected by the Jewish followers there. So that's the political context that we have to keep in mind. So what does he do? He goes, okay, fine. You think you're going to stop me? I'm the powerful one with Roman citizenship. I can travel all around here. I've got this power. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He goes to the Gentiles and he says, hey, guess what? You don't need to be Jewish. You don't need to be chosen. All you need to do is believe in Jesus and you're instantly Jewish. You don't even need to be circumcised. Your circumcision is now in your heart. Now check that out. <laughs> he just folded in all of these people that are on the outside. They now are basically royalty. And you know the rest of the history. I mean, these are the same people that were like dying for their faith and they were martyrs. So I guess what I'm saying is, what is our version today? Like, what's the socio-political context? And we know what it is. I mean, things are rough now. What's the context in which our positioning of some ideas or ideals or mythology will be the modern day equivalent of Paul literally co-opting this Jewish idea of being chosen, belonging to God and having hope and royalty that transcends physical life into this like spiritual one, we need some type of revolutionary movements or ideas that can do that without coming off as some like, you know, mystical hokey new religion. So I know I'm not answering your question, but I guess I'm just sort of playing. Around so you're with- saying we need a Messiah. Is that is what you're saying? <laughs> yes, but the Messiah isn't like, but the mistake would be the, the, you know, the developmental mistake would be, to mistake the Messiah as an individual or to mistake the religious ritual as a dogma. It can no longer be a dogma. It's got to be just the sense. You know, it's like the messianic sense has to be within all of us. You know, the God sense has to be in all of us. And so, you know, how do we relate to the world the way Vanessa's talking about it so that it becomes its own kind of historic breakthrough idea? I mean, we're sort of seeing it now. I mean, you were seeing it now in a very specific, very, unless we're not thinking about the same thing. We probably are. 
yeah, I think we, the way we're seeing it now, and that's why also I was a little bit uncomfortable with your use of the word revolutionary because revolution yes, carries so much weight right now and so many different meanings to different people. But I think the way we're seeing um, the evangelizing happening today is through very narrow ideas of increasingly narrow application in terms of the or, or increasingly narrow target audiences i i don't think there's the, the the we are regressing from the polian version of you know in order to say yeah. fuck you to the jews he he went you know what everyone is jewish <laughs> you don't you, 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 you the few of you who are still in the in judea you don't count like you're just you're just what a million people at best like that's probably not even that the i'm i'm talking to the entire world i'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just like talking past your head and now we're we're walking away from that in in many ways whether it's on the right or the left we are more and more siloing ourselves and we're even internally we're creating more and more borders of of culture and group identity that are that are depicting an experience that just doesn't that that defines itself by its by its difference, by its separation. But isn't this what Misha's asking? Like he's asking, is there some sort of messianic ideal that could traverse that divide? Right? Isn't that kind of yeah, what you're is, getting at, Misha? That is what I'm. No, no, I, 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 no, no. I, of course, yes. But, but the, but my point is that every strong voice that exists right now is going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Well, right. yeah, it's true. And maybe yeah. we're too close to it. I mean. It's interesting, like, you know, I'm having so much fun so long as we're talking about it, you know, in these kind of religious, historic terms. But, like, if we talk about today, then I get a little more emotional. <laughs> it's like, I don't like the extremes. Okay, so this is my critique of now. I don't like the extreme hypersensitivity that we have around identity politics. I don't like the hypersensitivity that we have about, you know, the felt traumatic experience. Like it seems so exaggerated that it's almost as if that as an exaggerated feature of the day is obfuscating, you know, the good that is in society and the good opportunities to collaborate. So that's my critique. But here's where... Wait, wait. So I want to pause and, and linger yeah. for a second on this expression that you just said, the experience of trauma, um, and give it a little bit more content from your personal story. Um, as somebody who's grown yeah, to do. raised black in America and how you understand this idea of the experience of trauma and what your criticism is on the way that it's discussed today. Yes. I grew up in the seventies and eighties. I'm 51 years old, African-American. And also, you know, I could bring in the gay experience as well, just to say, yeah, I have, I have experiences of social identity trauma. Okay. But, you know, looking at, the, the movements, you know, the current movements around race and equality and racism in this country, like, they're very strong and palpable and powerful right now. But, you know, my reaction as an African-American Gen, Gen Xer, you know, I think, well, wait a minute, there's a certain trade-off that I experienced as a bit tragic. You know, there, there was, you know, we suffered racism and struggle in my day as well. 
that there was a certain role modeling that we had in our African-American parents and grandparents and community members where there was a kind of resilience and even joy and strength in the midst of protesting and still fighting for justice. And I think a lot of that has been replaced with, and this is, you know, I hesitate to say this because I don't want to be insensitive to the pain of the moment, but there's a kind of exaggerated sense of suffering over against, you know, the sense of resilience and the sense of good that we still have. In the sense that the talking about the pain substitutes talking about the resilience. That's right. Yes. And you, I remember there, there were some examples that you gave me in the in in our conversation that I, I I'd like you to kind of reiterate regarding the the matter of resilience because I thought that was that was revealing. I I we were both talking about the way our upbringing gave us resilience. It, we started talking about this because of my um my little blog post about privilege, and I mentioned in passing the poverty that my my grandparents and my mother sure. grew up in and with my grandparents who were um my grandfather is like a is, is a seventh generation jerusalem my 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 grandmother um i think she's a third generation or second and she, they both lived in the squalor of the old city in jerusalem and and both, especially my grandmother, because she she wanted to be a comedian, so she particularly liked humor. But both of them were raised on uh, in in a community or in a in in an environment that deplored victimhood. Yeah, that's right. And admired resilience and there and it's not about you know picking yourself up by the boots, boots no, press, which, I, which i think that that this is one of the most um heinous and despicable narratives that have I, I i see the merit of it as well but i also but i see all the damage that it has caused and all the the malware that it has spread in in in, in, in the united states so i, I want to emphasize like this is not none of that i'm and, and i'm 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 Growing up as an outsider to the United States, I always ha- cringe when I hear the this this kind of like talking point of pick yourself up by your bootstrap. Oh, some people cannot. No, I, people, yeah, for I scarcity in itself can be debilitating, and trauma, whether it's racial, sexual, uh, uh, gender based, or for whatever reason, can be debilitating to the point where you just cannot pick yourself up by, by the bootstrap. So I want to just put that aside. My point is not that at all. My point is that for them the experience of the of scarcity and of everything that they didn't have and the in we could call it indignities or you can call it hardships or whatever it is never translated to a point of resentment my grandmother would talk about how funny it is that they had all had to share all her and her siblings had to share a bathroom with the um, entire block because there was only one uh, toilet that they had to go to and they would share um, um, the, the, the single pair of shoes between the entire household for us today. We would, we would find it horrific growing up like this, but for them it was, I mean, terrible. I presume but it was, but it was something. It was a point of humor. It was, it was a source of irony. And ultimately, when they were slightly able to climb out of it, they never became wealthy. But they became, they were able to to take care of themselves and their and their small family. When they did emerge from it, it was, yeah, 
isn't it crazy that that that's how we grew up isn't that is that wild like so yeah. and i i think this mentality it's it's just a, such a different mentality you reminded me thank you i mean you reminded me that like the, the simple point was what i remember was yeah we were not we were not denying our victimization we presumed our victimization you know from white racism in america we knew it we weren't pretending but our experience of the victimization was not as victim in other words we weren't focused on our hope being in the transformation of the white racist it was our accessing of resilience survival and thriving that we took from that experience okay so that's one thing i think now it's almost as if the ideal that we're really promoting is the white racist must change in order for my experience to be right. And I think that that's an emphasis that is just, it's tilted. But we still probably laugh about this. You know, we would go into the mall and, you know, undoubtedly, or I don't know, undoubtedly, there were just, we, there were so many occasions where you would hear this announcement over the PA system, you know, it'd be like some mysterious code, like, you know, 325 and aisle six, 325 and aisle six. And we would joke to each other and say, yeah, that means the black people just walked in, send a guard over. And, you know, we'd laugh and we would just be like, sort of like, okay. So like, you know, we had this idea that, yes, when we go shopping, we need to be dressed well. We need to, you know, they're going to think we're stealing. We're not stealing. We're aware of it. And we had a sense of humor about it. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that is in and of itself an ideal that you stay with, but I don't know. There's something in that it was a different time. And I think that the sense of humor and resilience about it I think there's something lost in that. But here's my point about what I think Tomer is offering in this idea of the image of God and us trying to make that practical. Like, how could, how could there be an opportunity today to have something revolutionary that isn't like scary revolutionary, like we have some new cult? And I think that, you know, there's an opportunity astir right now. And I think even though there's a kind of hypersensitivity in the U.S., and even though it's easy for like everyone, you know, all over the world, it's easy for people to pick on the U.S. about being hyper politically correct and hyper worried about language. I think within that, maybe the next iteration of this is that we're going to be primed to really practice compassion, like in the Buddhist sense of the word. It's like you know, just like the way Vanessa was talking, and like if we can. You know, who knows? In, in a generation or two, we're going to have kids who grew up being so aware of feelings and hurt and trigger words and other people's experiences. What happens is, you know, what happens if we're able to normalize the idea of our political opponents as fellow collaborators with this type of emotional intelligence and compassion? I think it could really be its own evolutionary leap. It's impossible for us to imagine now because we're overwhelmed with just how chaotic things are. I can sort of use my old age to kind of give you some hope. <laughs> At my age, I actually saw this happen in ways that we thought unimaginable 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, look, and I have to preface it by saying every example that I give, of course, it's still going on. Of yeah. course, it's still bad in certain pockets, but as an overwhelming social trait, no. Like the way that we used to just generally speak about women, 
is mm-hmm. not happening today. I mean, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, I, I don't know why, but I wanted to watch um, Saturday Night Fever mm-hmm. that was like made in what, 1974, 1976. I was shocked hmm. at how misogynistic it was. And I'm thinking, you know, like I'm the person that hates like sort of overly using political language. But every other comment about women, like I was actually embarrassed. I watched it by myself, but I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't think I could watch this movie with any woman. Like, unless they were like, if they were my age and older, they'd be like, yes, I remember that. But my point is, holy cow, things around gays, blacks, women, sex, it's a different world. Like a few generations radically changed because back then, there were a lot of people fighting for how you speak, how you think, other people's experiences. So it's hard to think of that as conceivable when you're in the midst of the chaos as we are now. But there's, you know, there are a few examples that when I remember, it's pretty astounding. I'm very uncomfortable ending in an in optimistic tone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially you considering would... that there was only one person of the three of us I, that I would consider an optimist. Oh, really? Who's that? Oh, oh, wow. I thought it's obvious. Is oh. it Misha? Is it me? <laughs> Those are the options. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. I like the mystery of it. <laughs> the ambiguity. <laughs> <laughs> we, need a, we need like an, um, a sound effect, like an uncertain sound effect. No. Like- <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder... I do wonder for the two of you, given that it's not obvious to you who I mean, do you think there are both of you think of yourselves as pessimists or as optimists? Do you think we have two optimists or do you think we have three pessimists? So I, it, here's my interpretation. Misha is an optimist. Adam is a pessimist and I am a cautious optimist. Mm. <laughs> I wishy-washy as always. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I just think that all that means is bent. Because, you know, it fluctuates per mood, per day, per issue. And I think, you know, even that is a norm that I learned. Like, I think, like, that's an ideal I would teach young people in school. Mm -hmm. I would rather teach the ideal that our thoughts fluctuate just like our moods do. And that's fine. You know what I mean? Like, even that's an ideal that is different from what's the truth? You know, what position do you have? You know, I mean, these arguments we had in religious school, like, are you a presuppositionalist or are you a classical apologist? And I remember I once had my humanities professor. She said, think about that. Like who wakes up in the morning saying, mm, what's my identity today? You know, it's like, so I think, yeah, I'm probably an optimist leaning, but hey, catch me at the right moment. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We have some really cool guests coming up, so follow us on uncertain.substack.com. If you feel like supporting the troops, like, share, subscribe, and stay sane.